Welcome to Evening Worship, everyone. It's good to see you. Just a reminder that next week we start Evening Worship at 5 p.m. for the... Five, yeah. I thought Roger was saying no. Uh, Five o'clock next week, and we'll see how that goes. Um, Yeah. Um, So our call to worship is from Psalm 105, verses 1 through 6. And as, after I read God's call to you and to me to worship him, I'll uh, say a brief prayer of invocation. So let me read to you God's word, his call to you this evening. O oh, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him, sing praises to him, tell of all his wondrous works. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his presence. Remember the wondrous works that he has done, his miracles and the judgments he uttered. O offspring of Abraham, his servant, children of Jacob, his chosen ones. So we are going to glory in his holy name. Let me pray for us as we begin. Holy Spirit, we need you here uh, more than anything this evening. Uh, Would you guide this worship service? Would you bless this time? Would you cause us to sing praises, to say prayers, to do all things here for your glory? And would you bless us in this time? And would you lead us to Christ, uh, who is our Savior, who is our hope, um, and prepare us for the week ahead? I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to stand, and we'll sing our first hymn, which is hymn 230, and it's Thou Who Was Rich Beyond All Splendor. Let's stand and sing hymn 230.
Amen. You may be seated. As we sing our next hymn this evening, um, we'll take up our evening offering. It's an opportunity for you to give. And as we do that, we'll sing hymn 562, which is I Surrender All. So let's continue singing with hymn This hymn leads well into our time of corporate confession of sin. And in your bulletin, if you don't have one, I recommend you get a copy um, to read and pray along with me. We'll read this corporate confession of sin. And as we have heard in these first two hymns, God has given us all. Jesus emptied himself of all glory and became poor so that we would be rich. And now we surrender ourselves to him And part of that is confessing our sins, repenting, turning from our old ways to new ways. And we have an opportunity to do that corporately and then privately, independently. So would you read with me this prayer? Merciful God, you pardon all who truly repent and turn to you. We humbly confess our sins and ask your mercy. We have not loved you with a pure heart nor have we loved our neighbor as ourselves. We have not done justice, loved kindness, or walked humbly with you, our God. Have mercy on us, O God, in your loving kindness. In your great compassion, cleanse us from our sin. Create in us a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within us. Do not cast us from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from us. Restore to us the joy of your salvation and sustain us with your bountiful spirit 
through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Take a moment now to go before Jesus. And if you don't know what to pray, you can look at this corporate confession of sin and maybe pick a thing or two and simply speak about that with God. We'll do that now uh, silently. Let's pray for a few moments. Lord, would you hear the prayers of your people and forgive us, we pray. Amen. The assurance of pardon is next. It's God's promise to all who come to him that they will be forgiven and more. Let me read from Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Truly, um, God's word blesses us with this truth. We are forgiven. And so as we go from this assurance of pardon, we move into our evening message, which is from Mark chapter 10. So I invite you to turn to Mark chapter 10, starting at verse 17, is where we'll be. Mark chapter 10, verse 17. As Jesus is heading towards Jerusalem in the second half of Mark, we come across this passage in which we hear of the very famous story of what many know as the rich young ruler. But here in our passage, we know him as a man. Uh, We don't know all the details that the other Uh, Gospels give us, but we can uh, connect them. So that's what we're going to be looking at this evening. Uh, Let me read God's word and then we'll pray for a moment. Starting at verse 17. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. 
But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. God, would you open your word to us tonight? Would you shine in our hearts the gospel which we need, which we base our entire existence upon? Lord, that you love sinners, that you died for us, that you rose from the grave to give us hope and eternal life with you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Jesus is walking, journeying towards the cross. And Jesus isn't going to the cross to save good people. He went to the cross to make dead people live, to give us life. If we think about the concepts of what it means to be good, or what it means to be a good person, or what it means to be generous, these terms quickly lose their meaning when we think about how we apply them in our lives today. We all have different definitions of what it means for someone to be good and what it means for someone to be generous. Maybe a good person is someone who works hard, someone who keeps their hair cut, uh, someone who is always five minutes early. Um, That really is someone who is good. Um, It's not me. Uh, We have different ideas of what it means to be generous. We ask ourselves, how much should we give to the church? 10%? If it's 10%, do we give pre-tax, after-tax? When is is it enough? Uh, We all have different definitions of what it means to be generous, and we judge everyone else around us according to our standard of generosity, as well as goodness. So I want to look at two points in this passage and then see how we can apply that to our lives. The first point is that goodness is relative. And then the second point is that generosity is relative. So let's look at how goodness is relative. In verse 17, if you want to look at it again with me, we'll read this again. It says, as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And after all this, Jesus looks at him and says, Go and sell all that you have. Give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. And the man 
turns away from Jesus sorrowful because he had great possessions. So if goodness is relative, if it means different things to each one of us, we base it on different things we believe are true, then the question is, is a good Jesus enough for you, for the world? Is a good Jesus enough? Was it enough for the young, rich young ruler? And will it be enough for us? Because there are a lot of people in the world who think Jesus is good. There are two, roughly, two billion Muslims who think Jesus is good. There are 17 million Latter-day Saints or Mormons who believe that Jesus is good. There are 1.2 billion atheists who would probably admit that Jesus has some good teaching or that Jesus is kind of a positive influence in society. So is a good Jesus enough? I could ask another question to you. Are you following a good Jesus right now who wants you to be good? Do you follow a good Jesus who wants you to be good? Because if you do, then you would fall right in line with this young man from our passage. The young man doesn't know who Jesus is. He thinks he's a good rabbi. So to this young man, God is some kind of a manager or boss. He was doing really well for his boss at the time. As we can see, he's following the commandments. Possibly he is giving his things away, just not as much as Jesus calls him to do. But we learn that he doesn't actually know God at all. He doesn't know God at all. Who is good but God alone? Jesus asks. This man clearly doesn't know who Jesus is or what he has come to do, but he perceives that he is good. I don't know how long ago this was written, but I read about a book. Now I'm forgetting. It was a book or an article about how someone said they discovered the bones of Jesus. Does this ring a bell for anyone? I don't know if this was a big thing or not, but Someone said they had discovered the bones of Jesus, where he was buried, and they were really his bones. So what does that mean? It means that Jesus didn't actually rise from the dead. Okay? Um, It's a pretty big discovery if it were true. And I saw one Christian pastor who said this, if this is, in fact, if these are, in fact, the bones of Jesus. He said, if the bones of Jesus were to be discovered, it would be a big finding. It would cause us to adjust our understanding of Christianity, yes. But ultimately, the truth and power of Christianity would remain undisturbed. We would still have all of Jesus' teachings, and we would have all of his stories, and we would have his wonderful example of love for the outcast. And even though Easter wouldn't be about the physical resurrection of Jesus, we would go on celebrating the example and testimony of this great man of God who lives on in our hearts and who inspires us to be kind to others. Even if the tomb wasn't empty, our hearts would still be full. Maybe you agree with this pastor. I will make the case that he is completely wrong and I hope you would, you might see that in our passage, but 
you might hear some things that ring a bell with our society as a whole, right? There are many good things that come from Jesus. Many reasons why people think Jesus is good, but not actually God or not actually their Savior and on and on. Is a good Jesus enough? What does it even mean to be good? Paul says in 1 Corinthians, one of the most quoted passages in the New Testament, he says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who also have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life, in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Paul would disagree with this pastor about Jesus. We would be most to be pitied in this world if Christ was not raised. And so it seems that Paul, the Apostle Paul, would have nothing to do with a Jesus that is simply or merely good and wants to have good people or wants to create good people. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is the only way in which we can understand who Jesus is, what he has come to do, and why we aren't actually good people. Without the cross and the resurrection, we'll be left with a good Jesus. And I think the problem is is that many of us agree with that, that you can't have Jesus without the cross, without the resurrection, without him coming to earth, And yet, we live as if Jesus wants us to be merely good, or that Jesus came to create a good church. If Jesus is just out to make us good or better people, then we can be good. Jesus becomes our boss in a way. We can safely avoid God if we do what he says for us to do. If we're following all the rules, then we don't actually need God's presence in our life. The very religious people who want to avoid God will do all of the religious things. They'll follow all the words of the Bible, and yet they can completely miss God himself. And it's the same for people who would reject Christianity and reject God, reject God's law, and live opposed to him because they themselves see God as someone who is just trying to make people good. They're both the religious and the irreligious rejecting a good Jesus who wants them to be good. So if goodness is relative, and if this is what Jesus is highlighting with this rich young ruler, that why does he call him good? Then it goes into this next portion of the scriptures and shows us how generosity and wealth are relative as well. So let's look at how generosity is relative, and then we'll wrap this all up. Look at verse 23. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. 
And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Wealth and possessions are incredibly important to every person in this room, whether you want to admit it or not. Uh, Maybe you can think about the last time you had a conversation about your budget or about your bank statements uh, with a friend, which you probably haven't done very recently, if ever. Perhaps you don't even talk about your money with your spouse. Money has such a firm grasp on our society that it's one of the most taboo subjects to bring up in a personal conversation. But our culture talks about it all the time. In Jesus' time, wealth meant blessing. If you were wealthy, you were blessed. God was recognizing your obedience, your service, and he was blessing you for it. This is why the disciples are shocked that this wealthy and generous man could not enter the kingdom of God, that he could not follow Jesus, that he would, be turned, that he would turn away from Jesus. He could not be saved. I was looking up statistics about our county. I thought it was interesting. Some of you know this, I'm sure, already. Um, I found that around this percentage, 22% of people living in Winston County are living under the poverty line. 22%. The national average is 13%. And that means that a family of four is making less than $33,000. So about one in five people are living in poverty here in our county. As we know, Jesus is not saying wealth and money is bad or sinful, but we know that there are spiritual dangers for the wealthy as well as spiritual dangers for the poor. And generosity looks different to both of these groups as well. Wealth is relative, generosity is relative. It means different things to everyone in this room. Mark says this young man in this passage had great possessions. He may have been even giving away a large amount of his wealth. Who We don't know. And we might look at our things and say, okay, I'm safe here. Jesus isn't talking about me because I'm not wealthy. I don't have great possessions, so I'm okay. But being wealthy and generous, again, are relative terms. So I looked up some very wealthy people in our world. Um, some of you will know who Michael Jordan is. If you don't, you should ask the person next to you who he is. But he is very, very wealthy. And uh, he's, his net worth is somewhere around $2 billion, with a B. And I looked it up, and he is something around 17,000 times richer or more wealthy than the average family in the United States. Sounds like a lot, because it is. So Michael Jordan would appear to be very wealthy and have great things, but compared to Jeff Bezos, who is the owner of Amazon, Michael Jordan is in fact poor because Jeff Bezos is 100 times wealthier than Michael Jordan. And Jeff Bezos is 
1,700,000 times more wealthy than the average U.S. family, which doesn't even make sense to us. We can't even comprehend what these numbers mean. They're just very big. So Michael Jordan compared to Bezos. Michael Jordan is not wealthy. Wealth is relative, and generosity is relative. When you look up uh, some of the things about how um, the wealthiest people in our world are giving, there is a thing called the giving pledge in which billionaires are committing up to, or no, I'm sorry, at least half of their wealth to charitable causes before they pass or during their lifetime or in their wills. So they're committing half of their wealth, which seems and sounds and is a lot. But half of $100 billion is still $50 billion. Are they really being that generous? Are they holding back? Is this generous? We, many of you have heard the news about the Leland Speed Endowment to Mississippi College. Someone in here uh, sent me the article to this. I couldn't quite understand the full scope of it, but this man, Leland Speed, gave an endowment to Mississippi pay for, fully pay for the incoming class of freshmen at Mississippi College, which is somewhere around 650 students. It was like way more than the year before, which makes sense. That's pretty generous, but then we would ask, well, could he have given more? Should he have given more? Is he asking was he asking himself these questions when he wrote this in his will? On and on. We do this kind of judging every day. We compare our generosity to our neighbors. We compare our generosity to other members in the church. We compare our wealth to our neighbors. And everywhere we go, we do this. And if Michael Jordan isn't wealthy, then we sure aren't wealthy. And if Warren Buffett isn't generous, then how could I possibly be generous Someone who has $10 to their name can be just as selfish and self-centered with their money as someone who has $10 million. And someone with $5 can be more generous than Jeff Bezos. Who knows? So we're starting to see here the truth that Jesus is teaching. And he does it in one line, which is incredible and only something Jesus could do. He says, why would you call me good? There is no one good. There is no one truly generous. In the kingdom of God, goodness and generosity aren't relative. Goodness and generosity are not relative in the kingdom of God. There is one standard for goodness, and it's that you must be perfect. And there is one standard for generosity, and it's that you must give everything away. And I can assure you, you are not good enough, and you will never be good enough. And I will never be good enough. I will never be generous enough according to my own standard. You will never be generous enough. But Jesus has come, and in him, his goodness, his generosity, become yours. In Jesus, his wealth becomes yours. His generosity becomes your generosity. 
Listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. This is a wonderful truth and one that we just sang about. But we don't take this truth and then say, okay, well, what do I do? We follow the example of Jesus who became poor to make us rich. Jesus, in his poverty, makes us rich. He cleanses us from our sin. He justifies us. He sanctifies us. He blesses us. And in his generosity, he makes us generous. And so this king has come, the one so generous that he gave up heaven and all its glory to bring the dead to life. As Philippians 2 says, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Which leads Paul to be able to say things such as this. He says, we are treated as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. Because Jesus the King has given up everything, incomprehensible wealth. He makes Jeff Bezos' wealth look, you can't even see it. It's so small in comparison. He gives up his perfect fellowship with the Father and takes on human flesh and suffers for you and for me so that we could possess this incomprehensible wealth of the kingdom of God. Jesus wants you to know what true wealth looks like. He wants you to see what true generosity looks like. So if Jesus has done this for you, how can you not give everything to him? We sang the hymn, I surrender all. How can you not surrender your entire life to him? How can you not trust him with your money, with your family, with your work? In light of Jesus, as one pastor said, it's, you'll become someone who says, not how much do I need to give or how much do I have to give, but how much can I give? And so we can stop trying to be good because we'll never be good enough. God is not our boss. He's not keeping a spiritual tally of your good things that you do during the day versus your bad things. Because goodness is not relative with God, goodness has come to us in the form, in the human form, of Jesus Christ. And only God is good. And only in Jesus can you be counted as good, as righteous, as if you were without spot or blemish. And this frees us when our goodness comes not from ourselves, but from Jesus. This frees us. We can stop judging others based on some relative form of goodness 
We can stop comparing our life to others. Whether you're, you think you're doing great, you're doing a lot of good things, and God, your boss, is pleased with your efforts, or whether you're down in the dumps because you think you're one of the worst Christians to ever walk the earth, none of us deserve anything. And yet God has blessed us. He became poor so that we could become rich. This is the good news that God requires perfection because he is perfect, perfectly holy and loving, and he provides this in his son Jesus. And he gives his son only to those who know that they aren't good enough and never will be. He gives his son to those who know that they aren't generous So are you a good person? Or do you know that you're no better than the homeless man down the street who's never stepped foot in a church? Do you want to be generous? Do you want to be good? Then trust in Jesus and give up everything for him, and he will make you rich in him. Bask in his goodness and not your own. This is all an amazing invitation from Jesus, and it's impossible for us to respond. But as Jesus says, thanks be to God because all things are possible in him. So come to Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you have shown us an example of true generosity. You gave up everything so that you would save us, so that you would give us your spiritual and your heavenly riches. So God, as we try to comprehend this love that you have shown us and that you give us today, would you fill us with this? Would you cause us to think again about what it means to be wealthy, what it means to be generous, what it means to be good, and would you cause us to rest in your goodness, your wealth, your generosity, and would you make us people that reflect you. We thank you for your word. We pray you would work in us by your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. I invite you to stand for our final hymn. It's a brief hymn. It's the benediction hymn. It's hymn 730. So if you would, please stand and we'll sing this. Go with God's blessing this evening. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit.
Amen.